Last Sunday, we looked at part one of Job's response to Eliphaz's second speech, where Job, the battered patriarch, disclosed several things, his dual desire, where he described his miserable affliction, which he pretty much does through the whole book, where he declared his clear conscience. He hadn't done anything wrong. He was innocent, so he had a clear conscience. And also where he divulged his daring request where he wanted God to plead his case before God, which foreshadows the the gospel where Christ is our mediator and stands before God on our behalf. Um, Through poetry, we were able to see and hear the heart of Job, but more importantly, we were able to see our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, through so many parallels and connections. Um, It was a good time. In the next section, Job literally melts in despair. He just, he's falling apart. Maybe more so in this next chapter than in previous chapters. He, He speaks as a man without hope as he continues in his mind to suffer at the hands of the Almighty. We're going to look at several things. We'll look at Job's regression, his request, his reproach, and his resignation. That's what we'll look at this morning. Please take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 17. Job chapter 17. I'd like to pray before we get to work. Lord, I pray for your help. That uh, just help me to get through this sermon and to to be focused on your word and to be focused on teaching and training your people here. I'm a distracted man this morning. Um, As you are well aware, we've lost uh, one, one of our dear loved ones and we're all sort of in a state of shock right now and I've been looking for her all morning. So we're sad, and we pray, Lord, that you help us now through your word. Your word is a ministry to us. It it builds us up. It strengthens us. And so we pray that your word would do that. We pray that you're also glorified. Help us to learn from your word this morning, and uh, help us to grow and become more like Jesus. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we'll pick up where we left off last Sunday, look at our first R, as I said, Job's regression. And we actually have to rewind and go back to verse 22 of chapter 16. We left that out last week because it fits better with what Job is going to say now. So Job's regression we actually see in verses 22 of chapter 16 all the way through chapter 17, verse 2. I'll read that now. Uh, Job says this, For when a few years have come... I shall go the way from which I shall not return. And now we see verse 1, chapter 17. My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are mockers about me, and my eye dwells on their provocation. Back in chapter 16, verse 19, Job expressed great hope, just great hope when he told Eliphaz that he has a witness in heaven 
who will at some point testify to his blamelessness and vindicate his claim of having a clear conscience. That statement in verse 19 of the previous chapter, that, that is just packed chock full of hope. Unbeknownst to Job, that statement was also a prophecy in a sense that would later be fulfilled at the end of Job's ordeal. This heavenly witness that he calls for in a sense, God himself did precisely what Job had prophetically projected. He defended Job. He vindicated Job, chapter 42, verse 7. But at this point, Job doesn't think that's going to happen. And this is leading to more and more despair. But sadly, the hope we see in the previous section was short-lived. It was only a, a burst of hope, a moment of hope, a flicker of hope. Job immediately regresses and he quickly returns to one of his favorite subjects, death. He talks about death so much in this book, it's, it's, it's depressing. But he goes back to this subject. In chapter 16, verse 22, he tells Eliphaz that he has only a, a few years until he dies and goes down to the place of no return, to the grave, which is called Sheol in the book of Job. Right? You see that in verse 22. He goes from hope right to that. His ultimate concern, however, is not death itself, but that his witness in heaven, God, will not vindicate him before he dies. That's his biggest grind. He wants to be cleared of, of the charges of his friends and cleared of the suffering that he thinks that God has brought upon him for sin. He wants to be cleared of all of that before he actually dies. You might call vindication... Job's ultimate bucket list. It's what he wants more than anything. And here in chapter 17, verse 1, Job tells Eliphaz that his spirit is broken, his days are extinct, and the graveyard is ready for him. Again, what is he doing? He's focusing on death, one of his favorite subjects. And this was his way, really, of saying that he doesn't have the strength to continue on much longer. Lord knows we've all felt like that. Some of us feel like that today. And that's the essence of what he's saying in verse 1. My, my spirit, my heart, I'm broken on the inside. My, my days are numbered and coming to an end, and the graveyard is, is ready to sort of swallow me up. This is, this is a man who is expressing hopelessness with, with death in his mind looming right around the corner. You might say that he is at this point depleted to the point of losing his will to live. He's saying to Eliphaz, I'm broken, I'm shattered, my days are numbered. I just don't want to do this anymore. I don't have the strength to keep doing this. I'm getting no relief. You guys aren't helping me. I can't keep this up much longer. In some ways, I think he would prefer to go ahead and pass away and go down into the grave to Sheol, but at the same time, he wants to be vindicated before that transpires. 
in verse 2, he kind of switches a bit and he takes a shot at all three of his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. He lays into them. They are mockers who are about him or around him. He blames their unmerited attacks for his emotional depletion and desire to give up on life. In other words, you know what? I'm depleted. I'm destroyed. My days are numbered. You guys aren't helping it. In fact, you're driving me to the grave. He's blaming them for part of this. Instead of focusing on their friendship, which, by the way, they made impossible because they came with tons of judgment and criticism of him, instead of focusing on their friendship like you would think that he would be able to do, he cannot. All he can dwell on, all his eyes can see is their provocation. This is what he says. This is a man in in deep despair, deep hopelessness, deeply saddened, thinks there's no way out of his predicament, blames God for it, blames his friends for it. In this section, he's primarily blaming his friends because they're just not helping him. And we can move to the second R, Job's request. We see this in verses 3 through 5, chapter 17. He says this, he says, lay down a pledge for me with you. He's speaking to God, by the way. Lay down a pledge for me with you. Who is there who will put up security for me? Since you have closed their hearts to understanding, therefore you will not let them triumph. He who informs against his friends to get a share of their property, the eyes of his children will fail. Job requests for God to authenticate and verify his innocence So since there was no one else who could actually do this for him, his friends didn't come to do that, obviously. And he's wanting God to pledge himself to this cause for Job. It was as if Job was asking, who else but you, O God, can prove me to be right? Thus, Job was asking God for a guarantee that he was right and not guilty of the sins for which he was apparently being punished for. We know in chapter 1 and 2, he wasn't being punished for sin at all. He was being tested. God was using him. But he thinks in his mind he's being punished, and he wants God to pledge to vindicate and and make it clear to his friends that he's not guilty. We see something similar to his request here in Psalm 119, verses 121 and 122. And that's not a typo. That's one big psalm. The psalmist cried, I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Guarantee your servant's well-being. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. That's what the psalmist said later after Job was alive. And what Job is saying is very much like this. This is his request of God to lay down a pledge of vindication. In Job's reasoning, only God's testimony could change the minds of his three friends since God had closed their hearts to understanding. It's like Job believes in God's sovereignty and that his friend's lack of understanding about his circumstances, that's God's doing. So God, he wants God to now reverse that, that ignorance and give them understanding so that they can begin to treat him properly. That sounded pretty confusing, didn't it? Well, we're dealing with a very confused man. <laughs> We've talked about this, how 
severe suffering in these things play on our emotions and attack us at the point where we don't think clearly or speak clearly, respond to situations clearly. You can have a level of emotional duress that, that puts you in a situation where you don't make much sense. But I do understand Job not getting the vindication from his friends. He's getting condemnation from his friends, not vindication. He wants God to step in and intercede and pledge himself to this cause and clear him up. I get that. He thinks that only God could change the minds of his friends because he had obviously closed their hearts to understanding. Because God had closed their hearts to the truth, Job believed that God would ultimately not let them triumph over him because that's what they're seeking to do by pounding him and pounding him with allegation after allegation. They want to be proved right and have Job pay the price. These are not good friends. And seeking to prove his case to his friends, Job quoted in verse 5 a popular proverb from the wise men of his day. He who informs against his friends to get a share of their property, what happens to them? The eyes of his children will fail. This is not actually a proverb in the book of Proverbs. This is some other proverbial statement that was around in his day. The warning in this proverbial statement is fairly simple. If Job's friends were denouncing him so they might receive a reward, they had better be careful because God could blind or God can blind the, the children of any or all self-seeking judgmental men. That's the warning that Job is making here. In other words, if Job was indeed innocent, as he had said over and over, and God vindicates him, the charges of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar could result in great harm to their families. Verse 5 shows that Job was becoming more and more frustrated with his friends. Really, that's what it proves. He's at the point where he's beginning to threaten them. Your kids will go blind if you keep messing with me. Somebody said that to me today, I'd be looking for a bottle of pepper spray in their hand. Are you going to pepper spray my kids? What are you talking about? This is what he's doing. He's beginning to retaliate against them. Even using the proverbs of his day kind of reminds me of a time I was debating a gal. I would say foolishly debating a gal, me being the fool, on Facebook, which I no longer have, praise the Lord, on the subject of gay marriage. And uh, I was not trying to be mean or cruel or, or anything like that. This was a gal who professed Christ, who supported the idea of homosexuality and gay marriage. And I was trying to be as gentle with her as possible and was giving her scripture after scripture and, um, you know, just showed her how, what the Bible says about that kind, of, uh, that kind of lifestyle and the destructiveness of sexual immorality and these sorts of things. And how God ordained marriage to be one man, one woman from the very beginning. You know, just gave a good biblical argument. I don't know if it was good, but it was a biblical argument. But she actually became so utterly frustrated with me and angered with me that she sicked her husband on me. And uh, so next thing you know, I'm talking to him, writing back and forth. And then next thing you know, he goes basically sort of offline, and now he's IMing, he's instant messaging me, and we're talking there. And I, I gave him the same exact biblical information and made the same claims. And at the end of it, he said this to me, may the Lord break your neck. Oh 
And I was like, oh, I had a pain right then. I was like, no! No, I didn't have a pain. But that was a classic case of somebody trying to put a curse on me, and they were clearly wrong. The Bible has its stance, but it, it just reminded me of this text where somebody gets so frustrated, they start making these sort of threats and even some kind of a twisted biblical threat, and that's what he made against me. And uh, the worst part about the whole ordeal is that I was on vacation in Monterey with my family. Yes, I'm an idiot. Why would I be sitting in a hotel room debating sexual immorality with somebody during that time? That was the great question my wife kept asking. And then when the guy let me out of it by saying that God was going to break my neck, and then we you know, went down to Fisherman's Wharf. It was really good. But I, yeah, It was just one of my many stupid encounters with people, and, uh, but the threat was there. And I think Job, Job's in the right here, and he's threatening them. You know, he's not saying, may the Lord break your neck. He's saying, may the Lord blind your kids. I don't know which is worse. I think I'd rather have my neck broke than my kids blinded. You know, then they really wouldn't be able to clean their rooms. I mean, my goodness. So it reminds me of what happened to me. But this is real. My situation was self-imposed. We can look at the third R, Job's reproach, verses 6 through 9. He says this to Eliphaz, really to the whole group, he has made me an object of scorn to the people. I have become a, a man people spit at. My eyes have grown dim from grief, and my whole body has become but a shadow. The upright are appalled at this, and the innocent are roused against the godless. Yet the righteous person will hold to his way. And the one whose hands are clean will grow stronger. That's an amazing section there. Uh, the frustration of, of Job has again shifted from his friends to God, unfortunately. As in the previous chapters where he did this, he kind of went back and forth between being mad at his friends and upset with God. And here he blames God for making him an object of scorn to the people. And one whom people spit at. You see it there in the, how it's written. And this really, apparently he had become this object of scorn, at least to his friends. Someone whom they would scorn to the point of just, you know, hawking a loogie at because the person is so despicable. This is probably happening to him literally. But it's really more than this, I think, a prophetic statement that finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ himself because he was actually scorned and he was actually spit on by people. Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8, which is a prophecy about what would happen to Christ as well as the fulfillment of that in a kind of mysterious sense. And then obviously in Matthew 26, 67. So like in the previous chapter, we're seeing Christ again represented in the text through Job's poetry. But Job was undoubtedly one who was now scorned. Uh, deteriorating under his affliction, Job lamented that his eyesight had grown dim and his loss of weight made his bodily frame look like a shadow. You see it in the poetry. Physically, Job was deteriorating. He was falling apart, so to speak. His vision was blurred. His body was sort of hunched over. And upright men are appalled at this, meaning the righteous were stunned 
to see the physical problems suffered by Job. This is a real thing that's happening to him. This suffering was so severe that the innocent observers around him were aroused against the ungodly. This is probably a reference to his friends. Like, what he means is that his friends saw his condition and they were aroused against him thinking he's an ungodly sinner and this is why he's paying the price. This is why he's suffering. That's what Job means. Nevertheless, Job would not surrender to his friends. He would not. In a brief moment, he rallied his heart before crashing back down again. He said of himself, speaking of himself, the righteous person will hold to his way and the one whose hands are clean will grow stronger. It was as if he was saying, I will not only maintain my, my righteous integrity through this, this whole ordeal, but I will, go, I will actually grow stronger because I am innocent of any wrongdoing. My hands are clean of any guilt or bloodshed or anything. Now, we've been calling Job the battered patriarch for many, many weeks, but I think we should switch it to the wavering patriarch because he goes back and forth like this all the time. He really does. In his mind and what he's conveying through his poetry, he's either dying or he's getting stronger right? He's like a man who's been buried up to his waist. Half of him is in the grave. The other half is up here in life trying to make a go of it. This again is the effect of deep duress and emotional suffering and, and physical suffering. He, he doesn't know if he wants to die or if he wants to live. He's all over the place here. And suffering, as I've said over and over, it can have this effect on us. It can make us feel like we're headed toward the grave. But then on another day, we become flooded with a sense of optimism and, and really a strong desire to, to push through and to, to even grow stronger through our ordeal, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you felt this way? Yeah. Some days where you, you feel like you got one foot in the grave and the other foot on earth. And then there's days where you're just flooded with this optimism and this, this sort of hope. And you know what? I'm going to get through this. And not only am I going to get through this, but God's going to make me stronger through it. That's what Job is doing here. He's flip-flopping back and forth. I'm going to die. I'm going to make it. You know, I'm going to get grinded into ash. I'm going to get stronger. He's all over the place. And I would simply add that the human condition is a strange thing, isn't it? How we jump around like that. Now, you've met some people who never have a rallying spirit. They're just headed toward the grave all the time. And then there's some who are overly optimistic and aren't facing reality. I'm going to be great. Dude, you are toast. I don't think you're going to be great. Job has a perfect balance. He's 50-50. He's I'm headed toward the grave. I'm, I'm headed toward not only survival, but I'm going to grow and I'm going to get stronger. He's all over the place here. He's living my life. Maybe he's living your life. The human condition is a strange, strange thing. Bouts of despair and hopelessness. You feel like it's over and then these wonderful moments, and they're really just kind of a pause in all the despair of just a, a, just a hope 
and, and I'm going to get through this, and we're going to get stronger, and we're going to, it's just going to be awesome. That's, that's what he's doing. And simultaneously, he's blaming God, which is never a good thing. But because the letter of the book has that throughout it, I think God is strong enough to deal with our accusations and gracious enough to bring us about to show us his true goodness and how this was for our good. Amen? He does that for us. I don't do that for people. If you treat me bad, I'm, I'm bad to them. That's one of my faults. Let's move to the fourth R, Job's resignation. We see this in the remaining section. This is actually the shortest chapter so far, right? 16 verses. So we see this in, in verse 10 through 16. And my sermon may be shorter today. I always say that, then go an hour and a half, but um, we'll see what happens. It's really a simplistic text. At verse 10, he says this. <laughs> this is insane what he does here. He says, but come back and try again, all of you. And I would add fools, because that's what he's saying. Like, come on. He's taunting them. Come back and try again, all, you, all of you, you fools. I will not find a wise man among you. Look at this language. And your kids are going to go blind. My days, he says, my days have slipped by. My plans have been ruined, even the things dear to my heart. Uh, somebody in the group is probably playing a very small violin for him at this point. They turned night into day and made light seem near in the face of darkness, he says. And he says, if I await Sheol as my home, spread out my bed in, uh, bed in darkness and say to corruption, you are my father and to the maggot, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who can see any hope for me? Will it go down to the gates of Sheol or will, it, or will we descend together to the dust? This is a, another super conflicting set of statements. There's positivity here. There's negativity. He's verbally assaulting his friends or retaliating against them. Uh, he's bragging about death again. I mean, he is all over the place. This guy's not stable emotionally. And he really begins by castigating his friends by daring them to continue their verbal assaults. Right? I dare you to keep coming at me with these allegations. Just keep doing it. And, and while he's castigating them and daring them, he, he knows that they will be unable to prevail against him and prove their own wisdom. He doesn't think that they have wisdom. He thinks they're fools, and they equally think that he doesn't have wisdom and that he's the biggest fool of all. So he, he comes out and he's sort of taunting them. Come on, bring it on, he's saying. Let's go. Let's get some more going here. I'll prove that none of you have wisdom. He's daring them. He's threatening them. He's castigating them, right? But then he very quickly falls apart again. <laughs> he does. He says, my days are, have slipped by. My plans have been ruined, even the desires of my heart. This was his way of saying, I dare you guys to come at me. And then the next thing he says, Eliphaz, I got absolutely nothing to look forward to. You can just see the confusion. It's oozing and dripping with this despair-driven confusion. He's, he's, he's Conan the Barbarian for half a second, and then he's like Ren and Stimpy Wimpy. I mean, he's just terrible. He's all over the place. You can't stick to a a single you know, thread of thought. It's a bizarre thing that he's in here. 
In verse 12, he returns to slamming the trio. Job accuses his friends of having no discernment between right and wrong. They're like Romans 1, given over to a debased mind. They have no logic or rationality anymore. That's what he thinks. He expresses it by saying they turned night into day and day into night. In other words, you guys have lost your minds. You are inverting reality here by claiming these things against me, a righteous man. You know, wrong is right to you, right is wrong, black is white, white is black, day is night, night is day. You've got everything crossed up here, fellas. This is what he's saying. And they expressed the fact that they had in his mind inverted reality when they predicted in the face of darkness, his whole dark situation, that, hey, light is near and all you need to do to have the light is just repent. Through that push in the middle of Job's darkness to enter into the light through repentance of sin that he wasn't committing, he thinks that they have literally walked away from reality. Job believed that Sheol, again, that means death, was his next home, and he would soon make his bed in darkness, he says. Having lost his entire family with the exception of his wife, he notes that his closest family relations were about to be things that are associated with death. What does he mention? Corruption, that means decay, and then he says maggots, right? That's going to be my dad. My dad's going to be corruption. My mother and sister is going to be maggots. This is what he says. His greatest fear was that the, the little tiny shred of hope he was clinging to, this idea that God would, would somehow and hopefully soon vindicate him, his greatest, greatest fear was that that little shred of vindication was about to go down into the gates of Sheol or descend together with him into the dust. Again, what's his major struggle here. Is it his affliction and the things that he's going through? No, it's God's silence and he's worried that God will not vindicate him before he actually dies and goes to Sheol. He has just the, the tiniest, if any, hope at all, and all his hope is based on this idea of vindication. This is what he wants more than anything. God, you have to clear me so my suffering will end. You have to clear me so that the suffering that my friends are inflicting on me with all of these terrible allegations and they're castigating me and smearing me and my community, you've got to bring it all to an end before I die. Please. That's his biggest concern. It's not death itself or any of those things. It's vindication. Uh, just some Closing statements here. I think I put this in your bulletin. Steve Lawson, who's uh, probably Rachel's favorite preacher, he's definitely a good one. He said this, It has been said that a person can live three minutes without air, three days without water, three weeks without food, but not one second without hope. That's wise. That's wise. And you know, Job was at this point in his life. He was at this point 
in his life. He had lost all hope that he could ever escape the pain of his suffering except through death. He had lost confidence that, that he would ever be vindicated by God. He was resolved that he would die in pain as a condemned man, suffering under God's hand of judgment. In fact, he felt so hopeless that he believed there was absolutely nothing he could do to change his situation. He had lost the will to live and was ready to die, but then in, in the blink of an eye, he's not ready to die because he wants the vindication before he dies. You know, the, really what this text is about is hopelessness. It really is. It's a depressing section. Maybe, maybe in my humble opinion, it's the most depressing of all the chapters thus far. It's a, it's a, a, a terrible, sad, tragic, depressing text. This is a man at the deepest level of despair, the deepest level of hopelessness. The only hope that he ever experiences and enjoys is a flash. It just comes and then it's immediately gone. And this, the hopelessness of Job was later mimicked by Israel at the time of Jesus' birth. Israel was under brutal, cruel Roman oppression. Israel was in despair. The people were hurting. The people were helpless. The people were hopeless. But when the right time came, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. He sent Him into the world, and what? He was born of a woman. He was born of a virgin, right? Galatians 4, 4, 1 John 4, 14, Isaiah 7, 14, Luke 1, 34, all of this, what happens with Jesus and being sent into the world, it was prophesied and it was fulfilled right at the, at the right time, at God's perfect time providential time according to his divine schedule the hopelessness and what does god do he sends christ and he sent christ here to live a perfect obedient life and when i say that this is one of the most critical aspects of christ's ministry that christ actually came and lived out god's law with absolute utter perfection he obeyed all of it why? On our behalf, because it's not something that any of us can pull off. Even when we do well with God's law, our motives are off. He did the impossible and lived a perfect life, the life that we could never live for God. He did that, and He also did the impossible in that He died at Calvary on a cross to pay for our sins. He was sent to do that. He was sent to die. He was sent to be buried. He was sent to rise, right? Rise from the grave three days later. What? Victorious over sin. Victorious over Satan, the enemy. Victorious over death. Victorious over hell. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. It's one of my favorite compact, simple expressions of the gospel there. And he achieved... All these things, right? He was sent and he achieved and accomplished all these things so that Jews and Gentiles alike 
could be forgiven, could be cleansed of their sin, could be reconciled to the Father who created all. Genesis 1 and 2. And yet, how did utterly hopeless Israel respond to its Savior? How did it respond to Jesus? It not only rejected Him, it, quote, used lawless people to nail Him to a cross and kill Him, Acts 2.23. Israel rejected and killed Jesus because Jesus didn't fit the profile of the Messiah they wanted. Israel was looking for a conqueror. A king who would destroy the Romans and liberate them, like David, or maybe like Jehu, who annihilated Abraham's oppressive regime, 2 Kings 10, verse 11. You've probably never even studied about King Jehu, have you? He was a stud. <laughs> he, was, he was awesome. He was a warrior. And, and Israel had its heart set, its mind set on that kind of Messiah. The first task of a Messiah, if he were to actually come to us, would be to destroy the most powerful empire that's ever stood, and that would be Rome, and to deliver us from the oppression of the Romans. What Israel actually wanted at the time of Christ's first appearance there, what they actually wanted was they wanted second advent Jesus. The white horse riding, tattooed, fiery-eyed, sword-wielding nation striker. Revelation 19, 11 through 16, that's what they wanted. It had zero interest in first advent Jesus, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who what? Bore our griefs, who carried our sorrows, who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities. Why? So that we could have peace with God. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Israel had no interest in that Jesus, no interest in that Messiah, just the conqueror. That's all it wanted. And so when Jesus came to fulfill the first advent and to be the suffering servant before he comes to do the second part, what happens? Israel rejects him because he doesn't fit. And guess what? When Israel rejected Jesus, it rejected the hope that is found only in Him. 1 Peter 1.3 You know what? Hopelessness is pervasive in America. It's pervasive in America. It's everywhere. In fact, it's spreading like never before combination of corrupt politicians, COVID, unconstitutional lockdowns is driving people over the edge. Depression is at an all-time high. Alcoholism and drug addiction is exploding in our nation. Suicide is on the rise. What do we as God 
God-fearing Christians, God-fearing people, God-fearing, and I would even go out on a limb and say patriotic Americans, not to the point where it's idolatrous, but what do we as God-fearing patriotic Americans who really love our nation in many ways, what do we have to look forward to in this country? Socialism! That's what's coming. That's what's here and that's what's coming. That's what we have to look forward to. Yeah. That's where we're headed, and that's where we'll likely be in a few years. And you know what? We need hope. We need real hope. And we can have it. We can have it. We can have it. But we mustn't make the same mistakes Israel made It rejected Jesus and rejected hope. It foolishly put its hope in the idea of a restored nation. Did you hear me? But hope sent a set on temporal things will not last. Why? Because temporal things do not last. Do nations not rise and fall? Of course they do. To put your hope in a restored America is foolish. It talks about this in Job 12, 23, where God raises up nations and makes them fall. Israel didn't want Jesus because he didn't fit the profile. They forfeited hope. They had their hope based entirely on this idea and concept of some kind of restored free nation. Is that not what we've been longing for here and voting for? Am I telling you not to vote for that? No, I'm saying vote for that. But I'm saying if your hope is in that, it's going to get dashed to pieces. We can't make the same mistake Israel made. The message of Christmas is Christ, and Christ is hope. It's not just that He gives hope. He Himself is our hope. You understand? Through Christ, we get the hope of eternal life. Titus chapter 1, verse 2, we get the hope of all the promises of God. 2 Corinthians 1.20, we get the hope of His glorious return, the hope of the resurrection unto life, and the hope of, of His kingdom on earth, right? 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, and we get the hope. Now listen carefully. We get the hope of being reunited with those who have fallen asleep in Christ and gone home to heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. And since Christ is eternal, what does that mean about the hope that He alone gives? It lasts and it lasts and it lasts. It doesn't go away because of what's happening around us. It doesn't wane. It doesn't get destroyed. It stays and it sticks because He stays and He sticks. Amen? hope that He provides has no end. And yet if we reject Christ like Israel did, we reject hope. More than that, we will die in our sins and go down to shield to await final judgment. It's a reality. 
the Christmas season is the absolute perfect time to repent and believe in the reason for the season. Santa? No. Jesus Christ the Lord. This is the perfect time of year to, to reflect upon where we're at and to find out where we're at with Christ. Maybe we're not in Christ. This is the perfect time of year to come to that realization and to repent and turn away from, from our, our own self-righteousness and our own efforts to save ourselves and just to let those things go and say, look, I can't save myself and to trust wholly in Jesus' name, in His person and work. This is the time of year to do that. I think it's every day, but this is a good time. And the question I have for you this morning is, maybe you're not in Christ. Maybe you haven't come to Christ. Maybe you haven't repented and believed in Him. I just want to ask why. And believe me when I say this, if you say that you have and your life has no fruit, you have yet to do this. Your life will be fruitful. It'll be a different life. You'll live as a new creation. God doesn't just save us. God sanctifies us by His grace and conforms us to the image of His Son over time, you will be a different person. But I just have to ask the question, if you haven't come to Christ, why? Why? Do you feel unworthy? Guess what? He came to call sinners, not the righteous. Boy, you're a step ahead of a lot of people if you feel unworthy. He didn't come to save worthy people. He came not to, call, not to call the righteous, but to call sinners, right? Mark 2.17, unworthiness is requisite to salvation, to coming to Christ. If you feel unworthy, you're ahead of the game. But some people let this sense of unworthiness keep them from coming to Christ, and that's a trick of the devil. You will never be worthy to have what Christ gives. Never. It's all by grace. Do you feel unworthy? Do you feel that you have to somehow clean yourself up first? This is a big one for people. Well, i got to break the news to you. Jesus is the one who cleanses sinners by His blood. He's the one that makes you righteous by wrapping you in His own personal righteousness. 1 John 1, 7, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. You can't clean yourself up. You can't heal yourself of your spiritual disease and death. Your death, your spiritual death, you can't make yourself alive. He's the one that does all this. Not being able to clean yourself up, that shouldn't prohibit you. That should cause you to flee to the one who can cleanse you and make you righteous. Maybe you feel that your sins are too many. You know, some people feel that way. Well, I've just done so much, I've sinned so much, and I've done so many things, and, and you know, things that I can't even tell you about, Pastor. I said, I probably did them in triplicate, you can tell me. You're talking to the king of the dirt balls here. But some people feel that, you know, I can't come to Christ, I've got too much sin. There's just too much sin in my life. Maybe you don't understand that he takes away the sins of the world, John 1, 29, Dealing with your sins will be no problem for Him. You understand? He alone can deal with your sin, deal with it decisively. In fact, I'd go out on a limb and say He did on the cross. 
Do you feel that He will reject you? A lot of people feel this. They've been rejected in their lives. They've been rejected by loved ones or a spouse or friends, right? They suffer from a sense of rejection, and they feel like, well, I know what I am, and I'm not good. And if I were to go to Christ, I know He'd just turn me right away because, you know, He's holy and perfect and, and pure and all this and, and righteous. He's not going to have nothing to do with me. You feel that He would reject you? Are you not aware of what He said? Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John 6, verse 37, I'll never cast you out if you come to Him, no matter what your condition is. Hopefully, I've removed your excuses. Unworthiness, feeling like you have to clean yourself up, that you got too much sin, that He's going to reject you. Those are all lies of Satan. The last thing Satan wants you to do is to be cleansed and saved and sanctified and to begin to live for Christ. He don't want that. I encourage you, today is the day of salvation. It's not tomorrow. It's not next week. It's not next month. It's not next year. It's not six years from now. It's not seven years now. Lord forbid you'd think like that one friend of mine that thought, well, I'll just get saved during the tribulation period. That's about the dumbest thinking I've ever heard in my life. Delay, 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 die, go to hell. That's what happens. Satan, that's what he wants. Today is the day of salvation. You come to Jesus now and he will save you and he will give you hope. And you know what? You got to go out and tell others about him. Make him known. People in our community and abroad, what do they need? They need salvation and they need hope because these are hopeless times. They need the hope that only Christ can give, the hope of eternal life, these things that we've talked about. In some ways, what's happened here is Job has taken his eyes off God. Even though he's talking to God, he's not seeing God rightly. And that's the ultimate cause of his despair and his hopelessness. When you take your eyes off the Lord Jesus, have fun. It's a terrible situation. Christmas is about Christ and Christ is hope. For us who believe, let's keep our eyes fixed on him and have tanks full of hope. For those of you who do not yet know Him, you've heard the gospel. There's no reason for you not to come to Christ. He will take you. In fact, if you come to Him, that shows that He's already working in your heart because nobody comes to Him without His aid, without His work, without His power. And go out and make Him known. That's what Christmas is about. We're told, sit in your house, hide. Go in there, hide in your house, don't do anything. Oh my goodness, COVID, 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 COVID. Look at this room, you guys are rebels. No, go tell it on the mountain. Go out and share the gospel. Share it at home, share it to your neighbors. Things aren't getting any better in America. I don't think they're going to get any better. I, I, I kind of hope they do, but then again, I don't want to falsely have my hope in a, the restoration of this nation. All that does is give us maybe ample opportunity to live more peacefully without persecution. But are we forgetting that persecution's always been good for the church? It's not bad for the church, it's good. God uses it. 
So it's okay. But mainly, our hope needs to be in Christ because He's the only one that can give true hope. He's the only one. He's the only one. And for those of you who know Him and have walked with Him, you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? You do. You do. Father, we thank You for this message. And from Job, the end of 16 and chapter 17, we just thank You for Your Word and how You've reminded us of what hopelessness looks like and how suffering can bring that and uncertainty and the things that we're even dealing with but you've reminded us of where our hope is to be, and it's to be firmly fixed on Christ because He is our hope. And so, Lord, remind us of that this Christmas season. May we not reject Christ foolishly like Israel did. Not all Israel, but many. May we not put our hope in the idea of some kind of restored nation here as they did for Israel. Israel Lord, and I want to be sensitive, I know that you called Israel your people and you chose them from all the nations of the world, but, and you fully know that Israel is an apostate nation that is facing judgment and destruction. I believe America is an apostate nation that is facing judgment and destruction. We've got so much blood on our hands with abortion and murder and all these things, it's a mystery to me as to why this nation's still standing at all. This nation deserves your wrath. And yet within this nation, just as within Israel, you have called a great many people to yourself, more so here in America than in Israel. I think 1% of the population is actually Christian in Israel. I think half a percent of the population in America, even though 86% say they're Christian, I don't believe that at all. You have a remnant here in America that you will preserve and use for your glory. And if we are in Christ, we're part of that remnant. And our hope is in the coming kingdom and in the Christ of the kingdom in these things. It's not in this nation. So help us to remember that this morning, not to give up, not to be fatalistic, but to have the right perspective as we engage culture and politics and everything else. We are aliens and strangers here. We do not belong here. And we're doing all we can to get the right kind of administration in place so we better fit when we are not supposed to fit here. This is not our home. Lord, bring us, bring us to our celestial home, our heavenly home. We, we, want to, we want to see you face to face and to live by sight, not by faith any longer. And we also want to see our loved ones who have gone before us in absolute joy. We long for that day. We know that you will faithfully bring us to you. Thank you for the salvation that we have and for the grace that, that compels and energizes and empowers our lives. May we live for you and bring you glory this Christmas and beyond. May we be on mission for you. May we go and tell the gospel. We love you. We thank you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.